Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Turn to the book of Habakkuk. Or, depending on your favorite pronunciation, turn to the book of Habakkuk. But I'm going to be saying Habakkuk all night because that's what I grew up with. I am writing on the board a big theological word. Theodicy. It is a combination of the word theos, which is God, and DK, which means justice. There is even among the Greek gods a female goddess by the name of DK, the god of justice. And what this word means, theodicy, add this to your theological nomenclature, it is a defense or an apologetic that answers the question, if God is eternally good and omnipotent, has all the power, then how do you explain the existence of evil in God's world? And the book of Habakkuk is a theodicy. Now, Habakkuk is going to start right out by saying, I don't understand how it can be this bad and God still isn't doing anything about it. And so he starts asking God, when are you going to finally say enough is enough? Now, of course, this is about 2,600 years ago. Last night at men's meeting, we started talking about the fact that the government is uh, advocating that Christians just kind of shut up and go away. Mm-hmm. And we talked about all the different ways that the society is saying, sure, you can be a Christian, just don't act like one. We don't care what you believe, just don't act on your beliefs. And we reached the point where we all said, it's bad. Boy, how much worse can it get before God has to intervene? There's a joke that's been around for a while that says that if some of these cities like San Francisco or New York don't repent soon, that God's going to have to apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah because these places have just gotten so very bad. So we talked last night about Romans 13 and Paul saying to obey the government, that all the powers that are, all the powers that exist were put in place by God. And and that if you're a good citizen, if you're a good person, you have nothing to fear from the government. And yet, here we are at a time and place when the government seems to be the evil problem, Mm -hmm. to which Steve rightly pointed out. Well, when Paul wrote those words, he was under Roman dominion, and the Roman government was certainly no cakewalk. When you take a look at some of the very evil leaders that ruled as Caesars in Rome. So it's bad now. It was bad in the time of Rome and it's bad in the time of Habakkuk. In other words, as long as there have been humans on the planet, it's been bad. I'm willing to believe that it was pretty bad when God said that the heart of men was nothing but wickedness continually 
and then he flooded the earth and killed everybody. I'm betting it got pretty bad before that. So as long as there have been people on the planet, there has always been evil. There were only, according to the early part of Genesis, there were only four people on the planet when Cain slew Abel. So that kind of hatred, that kind of killing started very early. As soon as there were fallen human beings on the planet, evil began. And so now after all these thousands of years of evil being on the planet, we find ourselves asking the question again, when are you going to do something? And so the book of Habakkuk is going to ring true to the day and age in which we live. It's going to feel very current, very contemporary. But the fact that Habakkuk said all this 2,600 years ago, roughly, tells you again that God is long-suffering, that God is patient, that God is on a timeline. He's going to do what he's going to do when he's going to do it. And that really, and this is a tough theological thing to get a hold of, but that really the increase of wickedness in the world isn't really what inspires God to act. Wickedness in the world continues on, and God acts according to his own calendar. He sent Christ when the fullness of time came, when it was time for Christ to come, he came. When it's time for the Antichrist to come on the planet, that's going to happen. And then there's going to be a time of trouble, a time of tribulation, unlike anything that ever happened on the planet before. But it doesn't mean that men are going to necessarily be more wicked than they've ever been. It just means that the timeline of God is continuing to play out. Now, we don't know a lot about Habakkuk. We don't know about Habakkuk the person. However, the very last verse, the very last line of the book says, to the choir director on my stringed instruments, which gives you the impression that Habakkuk was involved in the temple music, which I kind of like. I feel a sudden kinship with Habakkuk. Now, if it's true that he was some kind of a musician in the temple, chances are he was also a Levite then, since the Levites were responsible for the music in the temple and the worship in the temple. The three chapters of Habakkuk are really made up of the burden, the vision of Habakkuk in the first two chapters. In chapter 3, he starts with a, a psalm, very much like the Psalms of David. The whole book of Habakkuk is very poetic, and yet as short as it is, it's quoted from a lot in the New Testament. In fact, being in that, we are about to see the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation coming right up here at the end of October, what is this, the 499th anniversary? Well, the Reformation itself is purportedly begun because an Augustinian monk reminded Luther, who was trying very hard to achieve his own righteousness, climbing the steps of the Lateran Palace on his knees, sleeping on stone floors and flagellating, beating himself, doing everything he could to try to achieve his own personal righteousness, that it was a monk who said to him, the just shall live by faith. And that realization woke Luther up to what the Bible actually taught about where righteousness comes from 
and that it's not through your works or through your effort, that it is through faith in Christ's finished work, or at very least, faith in what God has said up until now, God's revelation of himself. Well, that verse that says, that saying that the righteous shall live by faith, comes right out of Habakkuk. The book of Acts quotes from Habakkuk. And so even though it's really only two chapters long where the theological part is concerned, it's remarkably well attested to in the New Testament. And so when he says he is a prophet, we believe him because the New Testament authors certainly thought that he was. And there is a great deal of theology that is built in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, off of things that Habakkuk said. They are expanded on and talked about. Now, as I said, Habakkuk is a very poetic book. He doesn't just say the Chaldeans are coming, the Babylonians are coming, but he colors it in in beautiful language. And that ability to express himself with language is really shown in chapter 3. So in the theodicy part of this book, the answer to the question, why does evil exist in the universe of a good God, if a good and a righteous and a holy and an all-powerful God built this world, why does evil exist? The answer that Habakkuk finally comes to is, because God's sovereign, he doesn't really come to a suitable explanation of it. He doesn't lay out a whole theological treatise on it. Instead, what he comes to is God's going to do what God's going to do. And of course, we here at GCA are very comfortable with that answer. And it's very much like what Paul said, that when people reply to God, God says, who are you? God's going to do what God's going to do. So that's the big overview of the book of Habakkuk. Let's talk about when it was written. There's a couple of dates that kind of give us some indication of when Habakkuk was written. For instance, we know historically that there was a battle in Carchemish in 605 BC, and that's when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Pharaoh Necho II of Egypt, and that's the beginning of Babylon rising into becoming a a formidable power on the world stage once Babylon conquers Egypt. And then 612 BC was when Babylon had overthrown Nineveh. Nineveh, which was seemingly impregnable, had been overrun by Babylon. So between Nineveh and Egypt, Babylon arose as the chief power in the Middle East. But if the fulfillment of Habakkuk's prophecy has to do with the fall of Jerusalem, which it certainly seems to be about, well, that happens in 586 B.C. So we know that Habakkuk was writing prior to that. And as we were reading through the book of 2 Kings, we reached that period of time, Josiah's reign. That's right around that period of time. Josiah is going to be the last good king that the southern kingdom is going to get. And then from there, it's just a succession of bad and worse kings and puppet kings and kings that are put in place by foreign kings. And and then finally, the Babylonian captivity. So somewhere in that 600, 605 BC period, that seems to be the time that Habakkuk rises up on stage, which, as I said last time we were together, means 
that again, God's only going to be talking for about another 200 years, and then God just goes silent for 400 years. And for 400 years, they kind of wait because they don't know what God wants. And so after 400 years, Jesus walks on the planet. Well, after 400 years, John the Baptist walks on the planet. And suddenly there's a, a, a true prophet in Israel again, and then Jesus comes on the planet, and prophecy begins all over again. So, all right, let's take a look at the book of Habakkuk. We're really only going to try to look at the first two chapters tonight. Next week, we'll try to look at the third chapter, which is the psalm, which is, which is beautiful in and of itself and is really a declaration of God's sovereignty and a genuine doxology. We'll get into all that next week, but I think that we've got enough to cover tonight in the first two chapters. So... If you're reading from the King James, the first verse will say the burden of Habakkuk. The NASB says the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. It's actually the Hebrew word for something that's lifted up, something you've got to carry. And so it is truly a burden. This is something that Habakkuk had to carry to Israel, to Jerusalem specifically, that they really didn't want to hear and he didn't want to hear, but it's a prophecy of the Chaldeans coming. The Babylonians are coming and going to crush them. And he's got to carry that prophecy. But it starts with Habakkuk asking the question that I think we all ask. How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? Anybody here ever felt that way? Mm-hmm. I got an email today from a girl who said, I'm having trouble praying anymore, and I don't even feel like my prayers are accomplishing anything. It feels to me like they don't even work anymore. But we've all reached that point. Habakkuk the prophet reached that point where he had to say, how often am I going to call out to you? Am I going to come crying to you and you won't do anything about it? And you will not hear. I cry out To thee, here's what I cry out, violence. There's violence in the land. Jerusalem has gone crazy. He's going to describe them in a minute as being no better than fish. Because fish don't have a governor or a king telling them what to do. And the people of Jerusalem have become like that. Just everyone running wild and there's violence in the streets. And yet... You do not save, even though there's violence happening and I can cry out to you about it. You don't seem to do anything about it. Why dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Isn't that exactly what we're all saying today? Why do you make me see these things? Those folks on the planet who actually desire the righteousness of God, who look forward to the holiness of God, who with God, with Christ can say, thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth like it is in heaven. We all crave the righteousness of God and we don't see it. What do we see? Wickedness, violence, confusion. And we ask, how long is that going to continue? 
Why dost thou make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me. Strife exists and contention arises. And therefore the law, the law of Moses, the law of God is ignored. And justice is never upheld. Feels that way, doesn't it? This, this could have been written last night because that's what's happening in our world right now. Because, again, as I said, as long as there have ever been wicked human beings on the planet, there have been those people of God longing for the righteousness of God and seeing the wickedness of humans. And it irks us. It drives us crazy. It, it, it makes us cry out to God. For the wicked surround the righteous and therefore, justice comes out perverted. Instead of judges and instead of the courts, instead of the wealthy, instead of the well-to-do, <coughs> meeting out an appropriate justice, instead it's all been perverted. If you're rich, if you're powerful, if you have the ability to judge in your own favor, that's what you do. If you're a member of the Clinton crime family, you just do. I'm not putting that on the Internet. That won't even go on the Internet. I just had to throw it in to see if you were listening. Chicken. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, maybe it will end up on the Internet then. So here's God's answer. Here's the first place where God answers. Starting at verse 5. Look among the nations... Observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs." So here's God saying, I'm doing something right now. You think I'm not doing anything. You think I'm not aware of this wickedness. You don't think I know this evil is going on in Jerusalem. You're crying out to me about it, but I know. And I'm planning what I'm going to do. There's a punishment coming. And the Chaldeans, who you can't even imagine that God would use these people, these wicked people, these violent people, as you're going to see in a moment, these very drunk people. These are people who are debauched in every way, shape, and form, and God's saying, watch this, I'm going to use them to punish Jerusalem. And even if I explained it to you, it would be unbelievable to you. Keep your finger right there in Habakkuk, if you would, and turn to Acts 13 for a minute. Turn over to Acts chapter 13. Because this is the first place, only five verses in, where you're going to see Habakkuk quoted in the New Testament. Acts 13, let's start at, let's start at verse 38. Okay, so Paul is going to remind Israel that in the time of Habakkuk, that there was 
uh, Chaldean incursion, that there was the Babylonian captivity, that Israel, because of their unbelief, because of their lack of faith, because of their lack of following the things that God said to do, God punished them. So now Paul is going to say to the Israelites again under the new covenant, he's going to say, remember that that all happened? Remember that faithlessness resulted in God bringing a severe punishment down on Jerusalem? Well, don't forget that because now that you're being called to faith, let me remind you that God has been known to punish people for their lack of faith. So starting in verse 38, he says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And through him, everyone who believes is freed from all things from which you could not be freed through the law of Moses. So here's Paul teaching law and grace. Verse 40, Take heed, therefore, so that the things spoken of in the prophets may not come upon you. And then he quotes it. Behold, you scoffers, and marvel, and perish, for I am accomplishing a work in your days, a work which you will never believe, though someone should declare it to you. And as Paul and Barnabas were going out, the people kept begging them that these things might be spoken to them on the next Sabbath. So Paul reached all the way back to Habakkuk to warn the Israelites, look, through Christ is the forgiveness of sins, which will accomplish full and utter redemption and justification that the law of Moses simply cannot accomplish, never could, never will. So now God has told you, he has revealed to you something vital, how justice comes to you, how righteousness comes to you. It is through him. It is through Christ. And you better believe that because God has a history of coming down on the faithless Israelites who don't believe what God says. So that's why he brought it up. So now we're back in Habakkuk. Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people who march throughout the earth to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared their justice and authority originate with themselves. So these are not God-fearing people. These are people who have accomplished in their own minds, they have accomplished their own dominance. They've already conquered Nineveh and they've already conquered Egypt. And they're showing themselves to be a fierce and a, and a terrifying power in the Middle East. And those are the people I'm going to use to punish Israel for everything that Habakkuk is worried about. Everything that Habakkuk says, don't you see this? God's saying, oh, yeah, I see it. <laughs> yeah. But I'm going to bring it about in my own time. I mean, it had gotten so bad, and God had not acted to the point where Habakkuk would go, well, when? And that's still how we are now. Well, when? And God is still up there saying, I know when. I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to mete out my justice when the time comes. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. 
and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping, their horsemen come from afar, and they fly like an eagle swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. The, the armies of Babylon marched forward, their faces all looking forward, marching line after line, phalanx of, of swords and shields, and they were just unstoppable at that point. And those are still the people God is saying, yeah, I'm going to use them. <laughs> you think they're that frightening, and they are. They're that powerful, that mighty, they move that quick. I'm in charge of them. They mock at kings and rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and then pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Okay, so again, the Babylonian gods. The Babylonian gods are so significant in the history of the world and especially the history of the Middle East that even when you get to the book of Revelation, you see reference to Babylon and how Babylon has fallen and the horror of Babylon. So the Babylonian religious system is very significant throughout the rest of the Bible. And yet God says they're not going to be guiltless I'm going to use them, just like he said through Isaiah when he said he was going to be using the Egyptians or when he was going to use the Ninevites, when he was going to use anybody to, to bring them down on his people, to punish his people. But then he's going to punish the people who punished his people because he's sovereignly in charge of everything. And so he has said, even though they're going to sweep through here like the wind, they will be held guilty. They whose strength is in their God. Now, in a moment, he's going to mock their gods because God likes mockery. That's a tough one, isn't it? But it's true. God mocks their gods. So then Habakkuk begins to respond. Now he's beginning to get some sense of, oh, yeah, you are the God who's in charge of everything. You're the God who made heaven and earth. You're the God who is working out his plan according to his own timeline. And you have always been and will always be. And, and you've put up with me coming to you and saying, when God? And God says, whoa, whoa, buddy, I've got it. I know what I'm doing. So Habakkuk says, art thou not from everlasting. O Lord my God, my Holy One, we, I believe this is a reference to all Israel, we will not die. So, okay, we're worried about the fact that Jerusalem is going to be run through by the Chaldeans, but we also know that we're in covenant with you. We also know that you've made promises to us, and you've made promises to our forefathers. And there has to be a kingdom to come. And these things have to be accomplished. So he concludes that because God is sovereign, because he's the one who is from everlasting, because he is the Lord, the Holy One, we will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. And thou, 
O rock, have established them to correct. Okay, so now Habakkuk's getting some sense of what's going on. Okay, God, you are bringing the Chaldeans. That seems scary at first. But you're not trying to kill us. You're trying to correct us. Now, this tells us a whole lot theologically about the way that God works. Those people who belong to God, as I've said over and over again, God will not lose. You can go all the way to the book of Hebrews and see the writer of Hebrews saying, whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son that he receives. And that scourging and that chastening isn't pleasant for the time, but it brings about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. This is the way that God works. God is going to punish his rebellious people, but he's not going to lose his rebellious people because they are his people. And he knew they were going to be like that when he first chose them. You can go all the way back to God speaking to Moses and saying, here's my law. And they're going to agree to this law. And God ends up telling Moses, and they're not going to do it. They're not going to keep it. God always knew what was going to come of Israel. And yet, despite the fact that Israel rebels, despite the fact that Judah and Jerusalem are so bad that he has to bring down the warring nation of Babylon on them, he's still going to bring the Messiah through Judah. So God is faithful despite the circumstances of this life and what goes on on this planet. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, we will not die. Thou, O Lord, hast appointed them to judge, and thou, O Rock, hast established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil. And thou canst not look on wickedness. And then the NASB translators add the words with favor. In other words, he cannot look on wickedness positively. Why dost thou look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Habakkuk's still trying to work this out. Okay, the righteous suffer in this life. And the unrighteous and the wicked seem to be doing fine. Why? That's Habakkuk's question. Why would you do it this way? Has anyone seen anybody wicked prosper lately? Mm -hmm. Should I bring up politics again or should I just skate right by that? Because the wicked continue in this world to prosper and yet I've seen God-fearing, Christ-loving people struggle immensely in this world. And that seems inherently unfair, and that seems inherently unjust, and yet we know that God knows what he's doing because the end result of it is going to be eternal life for those people who suffered here and eternal judgment for those people who had all their glory here and now. So there is an ultimate fairness to it all, but we sure struggle with it right now because we're time-bound creatures. We're sort of landlocked onto this planet. And that's all we know. All we know is this planet. And we look around and say, this planet doesn't work right. This planet is not fair. But when we get to heaven, we're going to go, oh, I get it. That was worth it. 
okay, okay, that's okay. I, I get the plan now. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why art thou silent when the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Still going on, isn't it? The wicked who have the power, who have the authority, who have the money, the ones who make the laws. Isn't that the golden rule? The ones with the gold make the rules? Isn't that the way that goes? I mean, that's the way the planet operates. And it drove Habakkuk to cry out to God and say, why are you silent when the wicked swallow up those that are really more righteous than them? And yet the wicked do them damage. Why hast thou made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook and drag them away with their net and gather them together in their fishing net. Therefore, they rejoice and are glad and therefore they offer a sacrifice to their net. Rather than recognizing that they're accomplishing these great things, that they're, that they're uh, defeating their enemies and building an empire, rather than recognizing that this is the will of God for the Chaldeans at this moment in time, they, they worship themselves. They worship their nets. They worship their own ability to accomplish the things they're accomplishing. Therefore, they offer sacrifice to their net and they burn incense to their fishing net. Because through these things, their catch is large and their food is plentiful. So will they empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? That's Habakkuk's plea. The Chaldeans are evil. The Chaldeans are bad. The Chaldeans are unbelieving. The Chaldeans are running amok throughout the Middle East. They're conquering wildly and they're coming toward Jerusalem. And God, why do you let it go like that? I know that you're holy and pure, and I know that you can't look on evil approvingly, and yet you're allowing it. Why? So starting in chapter 2, God answers. And again, the answer is, because I'm in charge, because I'm sovereign. You don't get it because you're not me. Which takes us back to one of my favorite passages from Isaiah that I've quoted so many times. But God's saying, my ways are not your ways. And my thoughts are not your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts above your thoughts. My ways above your ways. So it's not surprising that when God does what God is intending to do here on the planet, that we humans just kind of shake our head and go, I don't get it. But yeah, God said you weren't going to get it. He's told you what you need to know to get you all the way safely home to heaven. He's told you about Christ. He's revealed himself to the degree that we understand it's his grace. And that we understand that faith in Christ is the way to righteousness. And that's what he's let us know. But as far as the big, enormous plan that God has for this planet and raising up nations and taking down others and who conquers who and... Who gets to be president and who gets to do the... He hasn't revealed that to us. Instead, 
We have to walk by faith and not by sight. I heard a preacher many years ago say, we walk by faith, not by sight. You'll notice that verse does not say we walk by providence because we don't know what the providence of God is. If we knew what the plan was, we'd walk by the plan. But instead, we walk by faith that God knows the plan. And we just trust him to take care of it. So chapter 2 starts out with Habakkuk essentially likening himself to a man on a watchtower. He's standing up there watching these things coming. And he has to cry out to the peoples to let them know the enemy is coming. But instead, he says, I'm going to stand guard and I'm going to station myself on the ramparts and I'm going to wait for God. I'm going to see what God says about this. That's what I'm going to carry to the people. I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Which is interesting because the first conversation started with Habakkuk making his plea, why do you let this happen? And then God reproved him and said, I know what I'm doing. And then that didn't satisfy Habakkuk. He still wanted answers. He still asked the question, why? I will stand on my guard post, station myself on the rampart, and I will keep myself or I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I am reproved. Then the Lord answered me and said, record the vision and inscribe it on tablets that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. Got that? Appointed time. God is a God of set times. That is why he told Israel three times a year on these particular dates, you come to Jerusalem and you keep a feast for me. And that word feast is a Hebrew word that means set times, appointed times. I told that to my Sunday school class out in Franklin 20-something years ago. And I told all these kids who were middle school kids, I said that God was a God of set times and that the Jews all had to come to Jerusalem. Every man who could travel had to come to Jerusalem because that was God's set time. And one of the parents came to me afterwards and said, what did you teach my son this morning? And I recited that again to them. God is a God of set times. And she went, oh, okay, that makes much more sense. Because uh, my son came home and said to me, that you said that once a year all the Jews have to go to Jerusalem to set the time. <laughs> and <laughs> very funny. You say what you know you're saying, and then they hear whatever it is they hear. That's where they kept the atomic clock. That's where they kept the atomic clock. You've got to go to Jerusalem to set the time. So, <laughs> so God says, inscribe it on tablets so that they're going to read it and know about it. But the vision is yet for an appointed time. It's for a set time. So I'm going to tell you about it, and you're going to write it down, and then it's going to happen. And people are going to realize that I said this is going to happen before it happened. For the vision is yet for an appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, but it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. 
for it will certainly come and it will not delay. Now, we know from history that the things that Habakkuk is about to see and predict, the coming of the Chaldeans, the coming of the Babylonian captivity, we know that that actually happened in time. This is one of the places where you can check the Bible. The reason that I started by kind of giving you a date for when this book was written was to show you yet again that we can prove that Habakkuk predicted these things through God's revelation to him and that these things actually came true. And you don't find this kind of predictive prophecy that you can actually check in time and history in any other religious literature in the whole history of the world. And yet the Bible does this over and over again. The Bible keeps predicting things. And then God sets about to bring these things about. And so that's one of the many evidences that I point to to say this has to be the word of God. Because humans can't do this. And they can't do it with this kind of accuracy. They can't do it with this kind of consistency, especially over the course of 2,000 years. So the vision is certainly going to come and it will not delay. Now, verse 4, we're going to have to camp here for just a few minutes. Behold, as for the proud one, he's speaking here of the king of Babylon. His soul is not right within him. Now he's going to tell us in a moment why his soul is not right within him. It's because he drinks too much wine and he worships the creations of his own hands. So we know that he's essentially out of his mind. And he believes, apparently, that he is going to be justified by the things that he's doing, by his accomplishments, by his conquering, by his works of his hands, by his idols. He thinks that that's going to justify him. But Habakkuk is going to correct him through God and say that the righteous will live by his faith. Now, that's a theology that doesn't just reach back to Habakkuk. That's a theology that reaches all the way back to Abraham. And the content of Abraham's faith was different than the content of Habakkuk's faith, which is different than Paul's content of faith. What I mean by that is in the progressive revelation of God over the course of history, he revealed different things to Abraham than he ended up revealing to Paul. But still the essence of it was whatever God has said to you in your time and place, whatever God has revealed, the content is what you believe. And the belief in what God has said, the belief in what God has revealed up until that moment is counted for righteousness. So Abraham, the content of his faith was God said to him, you're going to have a child. When he was too old to have a kid, his wife's too old to have a kid. And God said, you're going to have a child. In fact, your posterity is going to be as great as the sands of the sea or the stars of the heavens. And they're going to get this land. Everywhere that your foot touches, everywhere that your eye sees, this land is going to be given to you. And in fact, all the way out to the Euphrates and all the way south to the Nile, that's all going to belong ultimately to your posterity. And then we read that Abraham believed God. I've said over and over, you can probably say it for me. That's the Hebrew word, Amon. He amened God. He believed God and God counted that to him for righteousness. Now, there was nothing in that revelation about the sacrifice of Christ. There was nothing about substitutionary atonement. 
There was just what God revealed to Abraham up to that point. And Abraham believed God, and that was counted to him for righteousness. And then that covenant, that promise that God made unconditionally to Abraham, after Abraham's great faith in God, what God had said so far, that seemingly impossible, you're going to have a child with your wife, well, that promise was seemingly impossible, but Abraham believed it, and so God made an unconditional covenant with Abraham, and then he made the exact same covenant with Isaac, and then he made the exact same covenant with Jacob, and that's the reason that the Jews all say Abraham, Isaac, Jacob as a euphemism for the forefathers, whether they call them the forefathers, whether they call them Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it means the same thing, because those are the three people with whom God made an unconditional covenant and promise. So then time goes by, and then Moses comes, and then the law comes, and then you have people who believe what God said in the law. And so here's Habakkuk saying, well, they've all abandoned your law. They're not doing your law. But I realize that belief in you is the only way anybody can be righteous. Now, again, Habakkuk didn't say anything about the death, burial, and the resurrection of Christ. He isn't talking substitutionary atonement. He's talking everything God has said to Israel up until this point. Belief in that, faith in that, is where righteousness comes from. So I think the broad general principle that I'm driving at is faith is the only way that anybody can achieve the imputed righteousness that God gives to his own people, and the content of that faith is whatever God has said to you up until now. Now, we have 66 books of the Bible. We've got a much greater revelation than Abraham had. We have a much greater revelation than Habakkuk had. And so that revelation in its totality, in its entirety, is what we're called to believe. That's the content of our faith. And so in the New Testament, Paul takes that phrase, the righteous shall live by faith, and he develops entire theologies off it. Let's go look at a couple of the passages where Paul brings this up. Start with Romans. Let's go to Romans 1, right at the beginning of Romans. Romans 1, I'm looking for verse 17, but let's start at, let's start at verse 14, only because it's going to sound a lot like what we've been reading on Sunday mornings. So Romans 1, 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. Thus, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Okay, he's quoting Habakkuk there. The little book of Habakkuk. 
is vitally important to Pauline theology. Pauline theology is based in the notion that righteousness comes through faith, not through works. And he gets that. He gets that notion from Habakkuk's writing. Uh, Turn to the book of Galatians for a moment. Of course, you know the book of Galatians is one of Paul's great treatises of the freedom that the Gentile Galatians had from any part of the law. So let's start at verse 9. No, let's start at verse 8. Chapter 3. Let's start at verse 8. That's a good place to start. And the scripture, that's all the Old Testament, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. So here he is writing to the Gentiles in Galatia. And he is saying, your justification, your righteousness is coming to you through faith, not through works, not through the law. And you can even find that in the scriptures. So why would you succumb to the people who have bewitched you? That's how this chapter begins, you foolish Galatians who has bewitched you. Why would you succumb to the bewitching of people who want you to keep the law to get some righteousness or justification? The the scripture itself foresees that God is going to justify the Gentiles through faith. That's the methodology. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand, the good news, to Abraham, saying to him, all the nations shall be blessed in you. That's part of the Abrahamic covenant, that through his posterity, all the families of the earth would be blessed. So if it's all the families of the earth and not just Israel exclusively, then God foresaw, the scripture foresaw that God was also going to justify Gentiles. That's Paul's argument. So then those that are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. So the same way that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, Anyone else who has faith in God and believes what God says is going to be blessed along with Abraham because he's the original believer. Verse 10, for as many as are under the works of the law are under a curse. I wish that every preacher in every pulpit in America was preaching that. They can stop whatever else it is they're saying and just preach that for a while until they get that in their silly heads and that they stop imposing the law on the church because it didn't help Israel and it can't help you and all it can do is curse you. So Christ became a curse for us to take away the curse of the law for it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things that are written in the book of the law to perform them. That's Deuteronomy 27, 26. It's already written in the scriptures that if you don't perform the law perfectly, constantly, from birth to death, you're under a curse. Why in the world would the Gentiles at Galatia be willing, be so bewitched, that they would think, oh, that's a good deal. I should go do that. Chapter 3, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man 
should live by faith. There he is quoting Habakkuk. And he thinks that Habakkuk is such an end to the argument that the very fact that Habakkuk wrote that and it's in the scripture, he says, well, then now it's, it's evident. It proves itself. It's axiomatic. Nobody is going to be justified by the law. Otherwise, it wouldn't say that the righteous man is going to live by his faith. But since it does say that, then Paul argues that no one's going to be justified by the law before God. That's evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, it says, he who practices them shall live by them. In other words, if you just start down that road of doing the law, then you are obligated to do the whole of the law because that's your lifestyle. That's the means of justification that you've chosen. And it's never saved anybody. It's never justified anybody. But that's how you've chosen to live. Instead of the righteous man living by faith, if you start down the law, then he who practices the law lives by that. So you either live by law-keeping or you live by faith. But you can't live by both. You can't mix the two. You can't take the two covenants and mix and match them and say, well, a little bit of faith and a little bit of law. Because a miss is as good as a mile with the law. As soon as you start down that road of law-keeping, well, then you have to live by that law-keeping because faith is no help to you. Later in this book of Galatians, Paul's, Paul's going to go so far as to say, if you seek to be justified by faith, then you have fallen from grace and Christ is no help to you. So it's not a little law and a little faith. It's all of law or all of faith, and all of law will curse you. Is that obvious enough? Paul said it's self-evident. It's proof. It's, it's in the whole Bible. It's all the way through it. In fact, what was the purpose for which God gave the law? To prove this fact, that even if human beings had God himself tell them what righteous living looked like, they wouldn't do it. There it is. The test case failed. So then salvation, justification, redemption has to be the result faith so he who practices them shall live by them Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law having become a curse for us for it is written cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree so the very fact that Christ was crucified is proof that he was under the curse of the law which he took on our behalf in order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant, through your descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed, so that the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Not through law-keeping, through faith. You see how the New Testament writers relied on Habakkuk to get their theology straight? I mean, that entire wonderful theology of Paul is based and grounded in what Habakkuk said. Let's take a look at one more example. Go to book of Hebrews. This is, of course, stop me when this is too obvious. This is a book written by a Hebrew to Hebrews. And in it, all these law-keeping Hebrews are told, again, that justification, righteousness, is a result of faith. 
and this is a person who kept the law, writing to people who kept the law, and he is saying in no uncertain terms that faith is the means of justification. So that ought to be a clue. If Hebrews who were trying to do it came to the conclusion it can't help you, then we should be wise enough to understand it can't help us. There's nothing the law can do for us. Let's see. Let's start at chapter 10. Did I say that? Chapter 10. Boy, this is a a wonderful argument, so I don't want to cut it short, but I also don't want to preach the whole book of Hebrews here. Um, Let's just start at verse 35. Chapter 10, verse 35, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. And then he starts the quote from the scripture. For yet, in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. Verse 38, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but we are of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So in his argument about the preservation of the soul through faith, he once again quotes Habakkuk. So this is just absolutely vital to our theology. And as I said at the beginning tonight, it was key to the start of the Protestant Reformation. And being in that the anniversary of the Protestant Reformation is right around the corner, I'm tempted to wax eloquent about the Protestant Reformation, but since it's a quarter after eight, I won't. We'll just finish this chapter, but just let me say that unfortunately in the church world today, there are far too many people who don't understand what the Protestant Reformation was about. The Protestant Reformation came about because the theology of salvation by works ran dominant through the Roman Catholic Church. The world was steeped in a theology that had been developed through tradition and through the will of men, because most folks were illiterate and didn't have access to the Bible, and the services in the church were being performed in Latin, which was a dead language that nobody spoke. And so Christianity became hidden and mysterious, and and the high initiates of the church were making up all kinds of things, like the infallibility of the pope or the worship of Mary as co-redemptrix and co-mediatrix. And these things were foisted on the people because the people didn't have access to the scripture to say, no, that's wrong, that's different. So Martin Luther's nailing of his 95 thesis to the door of the church at Wittenberg that began the conversation and then his later translation of the Bible into the German language, into the common language, The beginning of that Reformation is an argument of law versus faith, law versus grace. That really is the essence of what the argument is. And people today don't know what the argument was. They're so uh, ignorant of their own church history that most people don't even know what the protest was about. They don't even know that the word Protestant 
which many people call themselves, I'm not Catholic, so I'm a Protestant, they don't realize that that means protestant. You are protesting something. And what is it you're protesting? The belief that your good deeds are going to somehow justify you, which is still what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. And the protestants protested that and said, no, justification is by faith. So this bit of Habakkuk is vital to who we are and, and what we believe at this very moment. All right, let's finish this chapter. We are in Habakkuk 2. We're starting in verse 5. Now he's going to talk about the fact that these men are drunks. If you want some example of really how much wine had affected the Babylonians, all you've got to do is go to the book of Daniel and you see the, the feast of Belshazzar. And you see that they were eating and drinking and carousing and lots of wine. And that's when the hand writing on the wall showed up and said, many, many, tickle you, farson. I mean, and they were all well drunk by then. So alcohol, wine, has a big effect on the Chaldeans and their haughtiness and their violence. So God says, furthermore, wine betrays the haughty man so that he does not stay at home. No, he's out carousing. No, he's out plundering and pillaging, so that he does not stay at home. He enlarges his appetite like Sheol. Okay, that's really interesting. Sheol is the grave. Sheol is the place where the dead go. And he says he enlarges his appetite like Sheol, and he is like death, never satisfied. He also gathers to himself all nations and collects to himself all peoples, which is exactly what he was doing at the time. Will not all of these take up a taunt song against him? Okay, this is God saying he's not going to last forever. The Babylonians are not going to last forever. God already knows that he's going to raise up the Medo-Persians. God already knows that Babylon is going to fall. He knows the whole Belshazzar thing. He knows what's coming. So God says, will not all of these, these nations that he's gathered to himself, aren't they going to take up a taunt against him, even mockery and insinuations against him and say, woe to him who increases what is not his? For how long? And he makes himself rich with loans. So will not your creditors rise up suddenly and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become plunder for them. That's exactly what happened. After the hand wrote on the wall, many, many tickle Eupharsin. That word Eupharsin has as its root the Persians. That night, as Belshazzar's eating and drinking and whining it up with, uh, that was whining it up. I have nowhere, no idea where that phrase came from. But as he's winding it up with, with all his uh, high and mighty folks there in Babylon, as the hand is writing on the wall, at that very moment, the uh, Persians have dammed up the stream that is bringing water into Babylon under the wall. And having dammed up the stream, the Persians are pouring in to Babylon, even as the hand is telling him this is what's coming. Mm -hmm. And so God knows that. He knows what he's going to do because he already said I'm going to use them, and then I'm going to punish them. Will not your creditors rise up suddenly, and those who collect from you awaken? Indeed, you will become a plunder to them, because you have looted many nations. And all the remainder of the people 
will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to this land, to the town, and to all its inhabitants. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to put his nest on high and be delivered from the hand of calamity. He's using bird analogies there in a poetic way to say that he's built his castle on high. He thinks that Babylon is impregnable. He's sitting in his nest on high, delivered from the hand of calamity. Verse 10, you have devised a shameful thing for your house by cutting off many peoples. So you are sinning against yourself. Surely the stone will cry out from the very walls and the rafter will answer it from the framework. And it will say, woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing? That's, that's such a wonderful phrase. It's getting late, but I just I can't let this pass. It is from God that the people toil for what's going to burn. Peter tells us that the whole world is going to burn. And these people in their depravity think that that these things are important, the stuff of this world, the collection of nations, the building of fortresses, this is what's important. And God says they toil for what's going to burn. They toil for fire and nations grow weary for nothing. They're nation building, they're developing their capitals and their fortresses and they're so impressed with their own splendor. And God says it's all going to come to nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Okay, there's the answer to Habakkuk's theodicy. The book started with Habakkuk saying, why? Why don't you see it? And God's answer was, I do see it, and I am going to punish. And then I'm going to punish the people I used to punish. And then one day the world is going to be filled with the glory of God. Now, it's, it's not for you to know the times or seasons. It's not for you to know when these things are going to be accomplished because God does everything according to his own timetable and according to his own timeline. And God has his set times when he's going to accomplish this. But know this, when you think that God isn't listening, when you think that God is not involved and the world has gone crazy, remember that God not only knows, but he has a plan and that he's working his plan and that the ultimate end of his plan is that the whole world is going to be full of his glory. So while people toil for fire and they grow weary for nothing, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God the same way that the waters cover the sea. You can't deny the water. Pardon me? You cannot deny water. Yeah, you can't you deny can't water. <laughs> can't ignore the water. Well, I'll tell you what. It's getting late. So let's just make a mark right there at verse 15 because that's the point at which God is going to start mocking them for their idols and that they worship the creation of their own hands. And then Habakkuk is going to get into his, his psalm that he writes, his doxology toward God. And let's talk about all that next week. And uh, if you walk away with nothing else tonight, walk away with the knowledge 
that the God of the Bible, the God who is the maker of heaven and earth, the God who is in charge of all things, the God who is sovereign, that the knowledge that that's who he is is the answer to our collective theodicy. Collectively, we ask, why God? When God? The disciples kept asking Jesus, when? When? You're going to restore Israel now? When? <laughs> when are you going to do these things? And the answer Jesus gave them is, it's not for you to know. God's got these things, these times, these seasons in his own hand, and he's going to dole them out according to his plan. And when it seems like God is silent and it seems like history is just churning away and the world is getting more and more evil, the answer that Habakkuk gives us is God knows, God is sovereign, God's in charge, and God is bringing everything to his own ultimate conclusion, which is that the glory of God is going to cover the earth. It's just not happening right now. I get anxious. I get impatient. I wish it would start later tonight. I'm good with that. Rapture right now. Sign me up. Instantaneous change? I'm all about this. But if I have to go to the grave and wait for the resurrection and wait for God to bring about glory on this planet, well, then that's God's plan for me. And I have no other response than whatever you want to do. Because you're going to do it anyway. <laughs> so I might as well recognize that you're the sovereign. And that's the answer to Habakkuk. So, all right, are there any questions about tonight? Don't you like the book of Habakkuk? Yes. Isn't that a good and, and contemporary book? It feeds our souls even today, even though it's 2,600 years old. And I dare you to find another book that's 2,600 years old that feels so contemporary. Huh? And tells us what's going to be at the end. And tells us what's going to be in the end, yeah. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.